This is a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne, truly independent community radio. Hello and welcome to Plato's Cave, a Triple R film criticism show and podcast. I'm your host, Paul Anthony Nelson, and joining me in the cave tonight are Brundlefly, Emma Westwood. <laughs> I was waiting for a satanic sally or something. Anyway. That was last week. Uh, yeah, that was last... But why stop it last week, Paul? <laughs> but... <laughs> She's constantly satanic. Look, she's wearing bats this week. <laughs> she keeps We're going to have to upload pictures of my jumpers that I'm wearing <laughs> satanic jumpers every week. That's right. You had the, the upside down crosses last week yep. and we got the bats yeah, got this bats. week. I've got my Kenneth Anger Lucifer jacket handy. <laughs> As ever. <laughs> I've got an Aldi polo top, <laughs> just so people know. <laughs> Such a great counterpoint. <laughs> Um, I, I have a I have an H&M uh, jumper that has holes in it. So we're all doing well. Um, as, there's money in community radio, folks. Don't let anyone tell you any different. Uh, and, of course, that voice you hear is, all right, one more time for the road. Not ever. You know, I'll bring it up occasionally. Her Satanic Majesty, <laughs> Sally Christie. Thank you, Paul. Thank you. <laughs> On tonight's show, we'll discover the OG female film director with Be Natural, the untold story of Alice Guy Blachet. We'll go out for cheeseburgers with Jeff Goldblum and Gina Davis in tonight's retro title, David Cronenberg's 1986 remake of The Fly. And we'll sail into the heart of darkness with the return to cinemas of Francis Ford Coppola's Apocalypse Now in what he's telling us will be absolutely, almost positively, his final cut. But first... Be Natural, the untold story of Alice Guy Blachet. Given she was not, the, not only the first woman, but one of the first people to ever operate a movie camera, Alice Guy Blachet should be a household name, as well known as her contemporaries, the Lumiere brothers and Georges Méliès. But there aren't any cinema chains or characters in Scorsese family films named after her, and a, despite a huge number of films uh, being restored and released by Gourmand and Kino in the late 2000s, she still remains egregiously little known. Director Pamela B. Green, equally fascinated by what most people don't know about Alice Guy, takes it upon herself to track Alice's personal and professional history, quizzing film historians, filmmakers, and even taking to Ancestry.com to track down her relatives, (laughs) trying to find as many artefacts, articles, and photographs as possible, as well as a couple of extended archival interviews to prove Alice Guy's epochal significance to film history and link into our present post-Me Too moment to enhance her reputation and visibility. Sally, I have no catchy intro for this, so what did you think? (laughs) I was waiting for it, Paul. Um, this was a really fascinating documentary. I had heard Alaski's name mentioned before, but my knowledge of her was very minimal. And I found this fascinating and I really hope that people go and see this because she is such an important figure in cinema. Um not just being the first female director, but in so many other ways when it came to colour and her use of sound that they explore in this documentary was, like, really phenomenal. And it does leave you scratching your head as to saying, why do we not know more about this woman? I understand that a lot of her films, you know, are lost now, but she was still just such a huge player. Um, that yeah, this was. I, I really, really enjoyed this. It was a clunky documentary in a few ways. I think just the way that it was put together, but its content 
Um, and the use of archival footage in this really made up for any shortcomings that it had. Um, I just felt a lot of it looked like a, you know, a PowerPoint presentation, particularly at the start <laughs> of it. But like I said, the, the, the definitely the content of it outweighs the shortcomings of this documentary. It was really fascinating. She was an incredible woman and I do urge people that have an interest in cinema history to see this. Yeah, yeah. I think the the thing that struck me, though, was, well, listen to this beautiful narration by Jodie Foster who <laughs> yep. speaks beautiful French pronunciation. I was so with yeah. her French. Her French is oh, so good. I was, know. Within, like, the first minute, I was like, okay, Jodie's French is excellent. Oh, superb. I think she might have made a couple of films there in the late 70s. I think if you sort of look into her. Okay. Maybe. Her, yeah, I think she spent some time over there. Did she? Mm. How old is she? Oh, as a, like in her late <laughs> teens, early 20s, like in really? those wilderness years. Really? Yeah. Okay, the wilderness years. <laughs> Jody's She's had a few of those. Yeah. <laughs> She's <laughs> looking it up. The wilderness years of Jodie <laughs> Foster. <laughs> no, it, it, she, her, um, her narration was particularly thick at the start um, and then it sort of petered out. It was um, interesting the way this was, this was structured. Uh, heavy on the graphics to draw... Lineage and lines between mm. things and geography, yeah, I don't and think stuff like that. A lot of that was necessary. That that's what I kind of found yeah. a little clunky about it. I found it um, too fast because okay. I was trying to absorb it all. There's a lot to absorb, and I think sometimes um, I can see that with this documentary that they wanted to fit it within a t- certain time frame. Um, I'd like the way she kind of played up on the the mystery of the discovery. I did like that kind of PI PI aspect to it, mm. and the fact that Elise Guy Blachet was so French. Yet, didn't she spend time in South Africa, uh, South America, or something like that? She spent parents? time in the US as yeah, well. And, yeah. yeah, but before when she was a child, when she was yes. a child in Chile. So yep. her Chile, that's right. Yeah. So then when she when they we meet her, um, you know, her descendants who are sort of seems so far away, like poles apart from her. It's That's intriguing in itself. But also, as, you know, Sally was saying, this idea of this woman who really, you know, ostensibly made the first narrative fiction film, you know, and she started with, you know, making shorts, which everyone did, but rather than like the Lumieres or Georges Méliès, it wasn't... Uh, well, the Lumieres were definitely the trains coming into station and, and everything. They were the ones. She actually went to a, a Lumiere screening, and that's of the demonstration of the technology, which is how she got into it through Gaumont in um, in France, um, backed by Eiffel and all these amazing, you know, French, um, you know, entrepreneurs and art- artistic or- entrepreneurs. Uh, but... Uh, yeah, it's 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 interesting to see that she she has been and she's been she's done a lot. Like this is not talking about she made five seminal films or mm. anything like this. This is talking about a massive body of work well, that somehow has been buried. We have credited on IMDb, and there's a lot more because there's a lot of her films lost. As a director, in credits, four hundred and forty-five films. 
I mean, that's yeah. a mass massive, number. and you know, she had a production company, and um, yeah, her innovative sound use, color use, and the idea that she was she was fil- totally film centric, like she didn't mm. come from theatre or anything like that. Uh, I think that's interesting. That the idea of calling this be natural because that's what she put when she did Solax, her studio in New Jersey, which was the Hollywood, the original Hollywood was New New Jersey in the Fort US. Lee. It's amazing, isn't it, to yeah. think of this? It's it's just a, a whole different universe, parallel universe almost, that she had that sign be natural for her actors, which is because it's a different type of uh, way of acting for the camera to, you know, say theatre or even, you know, the early silent stuff. But the fact that they they took her name and, um, and reattributed, well, they took her name off stuff and reattributed male filmmakers to some mm. of her films like the one the the original the cabbage the cabbage one mm. what was it called the cabbage fairy the, the cabbage fairy that was um the footage that they had of the cabbage fairy which was one of her very first films and then i think she remade it a couple of times because it was very popular mm. that looks spectacular and just um the props and everything that were used in it and the storytelling was really quite breathtaking i thought as well as seeing this film i urge everyone to look Alice search for Alice Guy on YouTube so a bunch of her films on YouTube yes, exactly. Falling yep. Leaves is on YouTube yeah. The Cabbage Fairy is on YouTube uh, Matrimony Speed Limit is on YouTube uh, The Consequences of Feminism is on YouTube they're great they are really yeah. uh, I covered her stuff on uh, an episode of a podcast I used to do called Hell is for Hyphenates um, uh, about five years ago and discovered this mother load and was like, holy crap, why mm. isn't it is she a, more well-known? Yeah, it's nuts. Cerise and I did an International Women's Day show on Triple R where we uh, were talking about her with Megan McHugh, who's from um, who's on Zero G, which is on Mondays as well on Triple R. And um, we uh, were basically what we were trying to say was, you know, this idea that, oh, women are getting into film now and women are being recognised. We were saying, well, women, this industry has been created on women. And, and mm. there's a lot of mention of um, Lois Webber, I think they call her, a.k.a. Mrs. Smalley in this yeah. documentary, yeah. who is an incredibly prolific filmmaker as well, but was pitted professionally and in love. Yes, I didn't know that. Against Elise Guy-Blachet. Yes, I didn't know that either, mm. which I thought was very interesting. And I think is kind of uh, c- curious in the way that women can be pitted against each other. Yep, and it's mm. even... And just like the subject matter of her films at that time where, you know, she was looking at things like... Uh, you know, gender roles and all that kind yeah. of stuff and playing with that, like, really, really progressive content, which is just completely mind-blowing. Um, yeah, I, I'm, I'm really keen to sit down, Paul, and go through uh, whatever I can access of her Paul, stuff. Wh- who chose, because Hell is for Hyphenates worked with um, someone would choose an oh. auteur. Who chose that? Well, Lee and I chose it. Oh. My, my then co-host, Lee Zachariah. Uh-huh. Okay. Um, yeah, because uh, we used to do a subject called Mini Hyphenates, in which uh-huh. we would discuss uh, in the middle of the show, we'd discuss a filmmaker who'd made five films or less. And the whole thing with Alice is she never made a feature because no, she sure. was her entire career was pre-feature film virtually. Um, but she'd made, you know, 400 shorts mm. uh, or more of which, you know, 60 or something yeah. exist. Um, so, yeah, so it's like it was almost like her films all put together, you know, add up to a couple of features. So we so yeah. use that to, to discuss That's her. A nice idea. 
Yeah. Because it's important. And I think, you know, and look, yeah, the, the documentary is, I, I kind of like the clear style of it, but at the same time it is, you know, it's not particularly cinematic. It's, you know, it's sort of, but it's incredibly informative. Um, yeah, it was. Uh, there's, a, there's a couple of touches that are, and I read a variety review that sort of pointed some of this too. It's slightly disingenuous in saying that the story is untold because there there was quite a big launch of apparently in 2009 by Gaumont and Kino of her f- surviving films. Mm-hmm. And, you know... Which there the ha- doco talks about Gaumont writing her off, yeah. basically, or writing her out. <laughs> well, <laughs> certainly Leon Gaumont did that mm. um and that was baffling and and i've I'd read about that in the past as well he'd constantly say yeah you were you were absolutely integral to building this studio and the book had come out and her name wouldn't be in it yeah. and that would happen a couple of times but i think gourmand the company and his descendants have kind of tried to make up for that yeah omission mm. by but yeah so while her story isn't actually untold as this film claims it is very. It's still. She's still nowhere near as well known as she should be, and I think this film. This film is important to, to helping uh, restore that. Uh, there's also a lot of starry talking heads in this film, mm. um, and again, slightly like they have them all going. I haven't heard of her. I haven't yes. heard of her, and they're all there because they're talking about her. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I felt a lot of. Uh, I think it was like Peter Farrelly. There were a few talking heads. They didn't seem overly necessary. No, I, I don't think that the talking heads Maybe in this. And that, yeah, they could have taken that out because there's a lot anything or have them discuss in a bit more detail like it's just sort of like oh yeah it's great to have a woman screenwriter but you know it's like oh it's like they literally have Diablo Cody on to say it's amazing to look at her screenplays and screenplays then look like screenplays now yeah and that was it that was the what's the thing that Diablo Cody said? And I, I like Diablo Cody. Nothing yeah. against her, but it's like, why is that? Or, yeah. Like, why use this stuff? Like, it's pretty vox poppy, ordinary sort of stuff. So there's there's a few little flaws in that, but but I did like. It is quite a significant deep dive into Alice's mm. history, though, and into her into her career, and so it's incredibly informative and and that and and to be fair, like uh, seventy apparently seventy five percent of silent films are now lost. Yes. Which um, it, it mentioned that in the, the doco. Yeah, I like so Alice isn't Robinson Crusoe there. Yeah, like exactly. there's a lot of her contemporaries yep. are in the same fate and there's a there's a and there's some sloppy scholarship around the mid two thousands that kind of omitted a lot of names. But the fact that she was the first and the fact that she got onto all of these things before D.W. Griffith, like things mm. like close-ups and and certain cutting and use of sound and stuff, like a lot of stuff that Griffith was credited for later, she got to first mm. by twenty years in some 10, exactly, 20 years and in some also cases. the way that she moved in between genres, and you know they looked at her sort of doing you know serious dramatic things and her comedic timing, mm. which yes. did look you know quite hilarious, is yeah really impressive, like. Yeah, like I said, I, I, I have known of her, but this is really informative and I came away from this feeling like I'd learnt a lot of important things. <laughs> it, ha- it had a sense, an interesting sense across the documentary, though, of um, film preservation, I, I felt. And it was even um, in this uh, this idea of generational change. I, in my head, and it might be different for people who are a bit younger than me, but I almost feel like films one generation, whereas there was a big deal made of accessing the pneumatic um, uh, video footage of her daughter speaking about Mm. her. And then they had the thing about how to bake a video, you know, and that's really an odd thing to put Yeah. But, but I, I, I find that it. fascinating. <laughs> yeah, I didn't know you could do that to a yeah. videotape. Yeah. So it was more about this sort of uncovering of different forms of 
film, <laughs> as in talking about it as just an artistic medium rather than a physical medium, mm-hmm. it, what it, it appears in across generations and, and trying to access that because it seemed to be as big a deal in the documentary to be able to access the, the interview with her daughter as as much as her. And they did have quite a bit of interview footage with yeah. her. There was one archival interview that looked like it was done for a television station or something. Like, it was quite... Um, the other one that yeah. fascinated me, in a film where, you know, there's obviously... A, a, there's so much kind of, you know, alleged misogyny going on. There's one guy who I loved, the guy who was living next... He was a critic who was living next to her at some point yeah. and suddenly realised what a mother load he had living next to her and he's interviewing <laughs> her, and, her yeah. and hid the recorder. <laughs> and, and just, uh, like, he, like, oh, yeah, I'm just going to come over for tea and hid the recorder and got these interviews. And at one point she's like, oh, nobody cares about my stuff. I'm going to throw them out. And he's like, no, no you are not throwing that stuff out. <laughs> and wrote not a mo- for me for history. <laughs> and wrote a monograph on her. I love that. But yeah, she's truly incredible, and 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 it's a it's a I think a fitting tribute to a career worth celebrating. Yep, definitely. Um, just a postscript. Uh, Jodie Foster attended a French language prep school. La C Française de Los Angeles. Her fluency in French has enabled her to act in French films, which I which is yeah, it was a couple in the late seventies. So there you go. She's and she speaks a little apparently. Uh, 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 a little German and Spanish as well and understands Italian but can't speak it. A little bit of pig English or something like that. <laughs> pig, like, Latin. pig Latin. Pig English. Pig English. What's that? Pigeon English. Pig it's English. the wrong animal. <laughs> be, be Natural will be screening exclusively at Cinema Nova from this Thursday, August the 1st. You are listening to a podcast from Community Radio 3 Triple R FM in Melbourne, Australia. Tonight's retro title, David Cronenberg's 1986 remake of The Fly. When journalist Veronica Quaif meets scientist Seth Brundle at a party, she dismisses his wild claim that his new invention will change the face of human civilization as we know it. But uh, she dismisses it as a pickup line, but intrigued, she accepts his offer to meet with him anyway. But once he reveals his project, two giant telepods that allow molecular transportation teleportation from one pod to another, she suspects he might be right. But Seth doesn't want her to report this in her magazine, so Veronica instead offers to document his progress for themselves, videotaping each part of the process. This journalistic enterprise soon turns into a love affair, which enrages Roddy's, Ronnie's editor and douchebag of an ex-boyfriend, <laughs> the improbably named Stathis Borens, played by John Getz, when Ronnie runs off to end things once and for all with him, Seth misunderstands and, in a fit of jealousy, tests the teleportation on himself, which appears to work. But what he didn't notice was he didn't teleport alone, as his and soon his molecular reintegration doesn't just include the DNA of Seth Brundle anymore, but the fly that crept in with him. At first, Seth feels more powerful, more energetic than ever before, but soon, to Ronnie's horror... Seth begins to deteriorate in the most ghastly of ways. Emma, as someone completely unfamiliar with this film, <laughs> what did you think? Why are you asking me to talk first, uh, Paul? <laughs> no, I tell you why you're asking. Because it is playing as part of Miff's 
Jeff Goldblum and marathon. And also maybe because you wrote a book on the fly. <laughs> yeah. And have literally written the book but on it. But we've got so many tie-ins. We've got so many tie-ins. I so think it, it see, would be really funny if it just Paul and I spoke on this and you just had to sit there and, and, I just and be there quiet the whole time. Yeah. Oh, my God. And, and the then, so we just get everything wrong. Yeah. Like, get, and you weren't allowed to correct it at all. Well, it probably names Stathis Borens. Why would you say it's that? It's such an odd name. <laughs> Apparently it's someone that Cronenberg knew. I would have predicted that. Yeah. 100%. Because, like, where else would you pull a oh, name like Stathis yeah. Borens? Uh, it's a great It's a great name. Or it's like two scientific compounds or something that, you know, he's put into a name. <laughs> yes. I wrote a book on the fly called The Fly because I'm very inventive. <laughs> and um, the reason why is because this is a perfect film. You talked about a f- perfect film last week, Blue Velvet, and I, I agree with you guys. And I think this is the same. And I think what's so... Um, marvelous about the fly is that it's um, it's such a singular film. It like has this incredible focused narrative um, and beautiful through narrative that's just about um, going from go to woe, basically go to woe. <laughs> but, uh, if you want to think of it like that, but but yet it's so um, it's so deep it's so um it's so important it at the time it was um meant to be seen because it was made in 1986 as a a metaphor for the the aids epidemic but um which i think was actually was on the minds of the makers yeah i did Cronenberg deny that he did he he denied it but i um i've heard that I think it was on his mind at the time. I think that he changed his mind afterwards because he realised it was not that to make it about AIDS was necessarily devaluing it but it was um, making it constrained to a certain time frame yeah. so he, cha- he he said w- rightly so that it's really about mortality and mm. it's about ageing. It's not a, just about dying of a disease and, and if anyone's had a, um, a chance to see someone die of old age. It's like dying of a disease. Old age is a disease. Um, but this film is, you know, widely considered as a horror movie mainly because of the visceral gore effects mm. um, and that might blindside a lot of people. But what I think is so incredible about The Fly is because it is a cross-genre film. It's a science fiction film and more than anything it's a romance and, that's, and it's the most romantic film that David Cronenberg has made. And he's a master. More so than the brood? Really? <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> Do you think the brood was romantic? No, I don't. <laughs> Equally um, as emotional, yeah. not romantic. Yeah. Yeah. And harrowing, yes. One thing that I, I revisit The Fly quite frequently, I, I really love this film a whole lot. Um, maybe we're going to have another segment like we did with Blue Velvet last week where we're like, I love this movie. But um, I do love The Fly. One thing that I, I rewatched it over the weekend and one thing that really struck me with it this time that I hadn't necessarily noticed before was how fast-paced this movie is. Like, it almost begins mid-conversation with Jeff Goldblum's character and Gina Davis. Like, you're thrown right in there and it ends very abruptly. And um, also, I hadn't... It hadn't st- stood out to me before how minimal the cast is in this film. Yes, same. Like, That's what I noticed yeah. this time as so well. So revisiting it this time, those were the things that really stood out to me. Um, also, the subject matter going back to it reflecting the AIDS epidemic in the 1980s. Every time I watch this film, it speaks... Like, I, I read this film as either, you know, looking at people from old age and also someone that's, you know, really in addiction 
Mm, that really yeah. comes through to yeah, me. Yeah, the, the whole like, cocaine thing yep. with the 80s was hidden with the sugar, shoveling yep. sugar and getting sort of uh-huh. overactive. And every and being hyper and yeah. sweating. Every and time I go and watch this again, that really stands out more to me as I think, oh, this is something, this is a film that talks is talking about, you know, the perils of addiction in relationship and, you know, how that kind of destroys things. Um, so, yeah, th- those were going back to this film because there's so much you can say about it, but those were the three things that I really... Uh, took away from it this time watching it. Yeah, I've, oh. I've, I, this was the first film I ever bought. Oh, really? I, and I actually watched it on the VHS that I bought <gasps> way back in 1988. And how did it look? Looked great. Excellent. You know, and glorious four by three. Have you still got it? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, oh, great. That's, that's the tape I watched it on. Yeah, yeah. Um, wow. Yeah, we hooked the VHS up and went, let's do this. Let's get awesome. Get 80s. Let's watched, get old school. Watched all the trailers at the start, <laughs> Evil Dead 2 and Predator. Have, um, have you seen every movie <laughs> ever made? <laughs> See, I was even pre that. That was still coming. <laughs> He's slowing me. Um, <laughs> but this was, I again, that's the first thing you notice. Why don't more films start and end like this. Like, mm. just yep. get in, get out. Like, mm-hmm. that's one of the tenets of great screenwriting is come in as late as possible, get out as early as mm-hmm. possible. And um, and this does that. Like, yeah, it throws you in, they're back to his out. Like, she's looking at the telepods within five minutes of the film. Like, it's just crazy. Mm. Uh, it was to this point where I was watching this with my partner and we were both saying... Your husband. My husband. <laughs> we were both, he, gets, he gets annoyed when she's we, his partner. We were both saying... Everyone can get married now, we can say husband, yeah. all right? It's okay. When we were watching this, we were both saying, is there... Have we got an edition where things have been cut out of it? Yeah. Are we missing yeah. things? Like, it's so quick. Like, it's bang, 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 bang. But I really appreciated that too. Yeah. Mm. I mean, Cronenberg doesn't... He's never really messed around as a mm. filmmaker. Like, he's never made a two-hour movie. Like, he's always, you know, kept things really tight. Um, But this is a perfect model of the way that works. Um, And, yeah, sadly, listeners, if you want... If you came here for conflict, you're not going to get it (laughs) because the fly is incredible. (laughs) It's one of my all-time favourite... Horror and science fiction films. Next retro, I'm going to pick Hot Shots. No, I'm not. <laughs> <laughs> just, just Young novel. Einstein. <laughs> the oeuvre the of Yahoo Serious. There'll be a three films one week. Um, good luck with Mr. Accident. Um, but this was, yeah, it's just so, yeah, and again, it's so emotional. And it's so, and I think, yeah, I mean, you know, why can't a horror science fiction film be a romance? You know, why, you know, um, the performances, Goldblum's performance is award caliber. This is his best. Or- this is his best. This is why I think you, you look at the lineup of um, films that are being shown at the the Goldblum marathon, and I think I think this is about the fourth film. Yeah, <laughs> and they put in the it. In, and I think that's not a bad idea. I think it's actually the best one that's being shown. Oh. By miles. Yeah, and for his performance as well, he didn't. He really didn't get recognised as much as he should have. He got. Uh, not many actors wanted to do it because um, of the acting under makeup, and actors don't want to appear under makeup because people can't see them mm. act. Although a precursor was The Elephant Man, yes. David mm. Lynch, with uh, John Hurt, which got very highly awarded, and so did Hurt and as bo- part of that role. Both films produced by Brooks Films and Stuart Cornfield. And Stuart Cornfield. So this is, um, yeah, The Fly has a direct lineage to The Elephant Man. But I think it's just a film that also looking at it today in the age of special effects and being able to look at this film that is 
all, uh, you know, puppetry and goo and viscera. It's it's real. And you get to the end and um, they are, you know, Jeff Goldblum's character, is, Jeff Goldblum himself has completely disintegrated and the the actual climax is with a puppet. Yeah. And it's totally sold. And I mean, it you're still weeping. works, which yeah. is bizarre. Like this thing is like, with, and it's just, it's so sad. It's incredibly sad. But I, I would argue that if they didn't have that to work with, it wouldn't have been as strong. Yeah. The the physicality of it makes it so strong. But Goldblum is just sensational. So sensational. There's not a... F- I see there's nothing wrong with this film. <laughs> and I've also looked into the stuff that was cut out of it and I think it was... Because th- there was another ending. Yeah. Well, can and, can um, you tell us a little bit about this? Because I don't know about it. The ending? Yeah. It was... Um, she wakes up with Stathis Borens having a dream of having uh, a, like a, a little butterfly baby. She has a dream of the butterfly baby and it's so it kind of ends on this sort of nice little bug dream yeah and it's you can actually find it online Mm. and have a have a look at it but it was um cornfeld actually a producer still champions it but he said in the end he realized everyone else said no this is not the end to go with and it was like yeah like you said in, out. I mean, what a way to end. And the start, the opening line is, what am I working on? I'm working on something that will change mankind as we know it or change the world as mm, we know yep. it. Mm. What a strong line to yeah. start a film with. You go straight away, I want to know this. Yeah. I want to know what's going on. You know, he just knows how to hook it. And you know, the, the, the chemistry between Gina Davis and Jeff Goldblum, they were a couple at the time. So that's really played out. I think John Getz did a sensational role as well. Yeah, he's great in this. Because he yep. becomes the hero. A sort of, really odd hero. Yes, yeah, he definitely throws himself in there and cops it. I was just kind yeah. of wondering why he's such a dick, though, at certain times. Like, I know, I, like, he's got strong emotions for a while there, and then it's sort of like, you're kind of being egregiously dickish right now. I think that's just, just was him, yeah, you know. But just, what sold it was, and, and Cronenberg said as well, he made it that they had no family and they had no other friends. You know, mm. you, you don't, you assume that there might be someone, but you don't, he isolated them so she yes. had to go to Stathis Borens. When, yeah. when I was re-watching this, I yeah. was saying what she needs right now is some good girlfriends <laughs> to take her to be going to get an abortion. Don't go to the sleazebag. Yeah. Don't be going to your ex-boyfriend. She needs her girlfriends here. Where are they? Yeah. And that was when I was like, okay, sh- there is no other cast in this film. No. And that was that was my that was our thing as well. Yep. I was watching it with my partner as well. Um, and it was that thing of. Um, yeah, like where, like why go to him to mm, have yeah. this conversation? He's terrible. Like, like I mean, he might be a good editor and what they've had, but whatever. For this particular moment <laughs> at this time, yeah. no. But that, so that was a conscious decision on Cronenberg's yes, part. Yes, yes, absolutely. Because it feels like a play yeah. at times. Almost, yes, you know? yes. And it's, the music, the music was me. Like you listen to that music we, we just heard was um, really, really dramatic. And um, and it was Brooks at one stage said, "Is this?" too much Mm. for this film and there was that sort of music when you know uh goldblum's decaying going down to the 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 bar to break a guy's wrist (laughs) and all that sort of thing and he said this is a little bit too much and cronenberg said no this is a man walking to his fate Mm. this this music is really important yeah and i think that's the beauty it's a light and shade of this film it's also kind of a full of light and shade it's kind of an opera it is, mm. and it was an opera. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> later on. It's, <laughs> yeah. And it's small wonder what. Yeah. yeah, yeah. 
which Cronenberg directed. Yeah, with Howard Shaw. It didn't get very good reviews, I have to say. (laughs) Bring it back. I'd love to see that. I would too. But it's a perfect fit because, like, you know, it sort of ends with a tragic death and it's it's quite operatic in in structure and and emotion. Yeah. Um, Yeah. But, yeah, it's, you know, super tight and beautifully done and, 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 you know, with a particularly great distinctive nightmare sequence. Um, oh my god! Isn't that fat with Cronenberg in it? Yes, doing his Alfred Just before he was about to direct a film about <laughs> yeah. twin gynecologists. Yeah. Um, but it, I got this. Uh, what, what? Just a little side note. I spoke to this guy Lee Wilson, who worked on the film, and and what I loved was he was the computer effects guy, right? But computer effects in not the way we realise today. He actually created the look of the computer. Ah, in yeah. In the film, the very open and, and explanatory computer. Well, this was <laughs> another example of a film, a science. This is where I think it really firmly fits in science fiction, where the main some of the big plot points. Are told by the computer. Yeah. Yes, they are. yes, like yes. an alien. Yeah, yeah, yeah. For example, it's Fan- it's a fantastic film. <laughs> it's a masterpiece, um, and you can see it at the Asta. You so can. <laughs> so either uh, head to the Gold Bloomathon at uh, uh, for the Melbourne International Film Festival. I believe it's on the tenth of August. It could be it's over a Friday night, Saturday morning. Or if you can't get to that, you can the flies available to rent or buy on iTunes, Google Play, and YouTube Rentals. Three, triple, ah. Our final film for this evening, the 4K restoration of Francis Ford Coppola's 1979 anti-war classic, Apocalypse Now, Final Cut. But before we get started, Emma, um, we should probably uh, draw allusions to a couple of passings that happened this week. Another, uh, first of all, another Fly um, connection, but from the original Fly film, 1958, the one directed by Kurt Newman, starring Vincent Price and... David Al Hedison, who played the scientist that Jeff Goldblum then played in the remake in 1986, he passed away last week. And this was his biggest role, the the fly, and he was excellent in it, despite the fact that he got a fly head halfway through and then that was the end of his acting. <laughs> Not even halfway through. It was, it was earlier than that. But, yes, very sad. And a, another big one, I think, for all of us, Rutger Hauer, who... Um, Blade Runner, what can we say? Mm. You know, everyone knows. But also The Hitcher. I was always very, very fond of him in in that role, I and have to say myself. Nighthawks, Batman Begins, Ladyhawk, of Lady course. Hawk. Hobo with a shotgun. Hobo, <laughs> Hobo with a shotgun. Um, also, uh, Sin City, um, you know, of, of course, the early years with Verhoeven, a Turkish delight and soldier of orange. And, yeah, he'll be greatly missed. I, I was I was rather touched by the amount of the outpouring of love for yeah, I was, was I was actually shocked. Media I didn't realise he was sick. So yeah, it was same. quite a fast sickness, 75. He should have had some more in him. He should have. Vale Rutger. Saigon. Shit. These words begin a journey into madness for Captain Benjamin Willard, played by Martin Sheen, a man in need of a mission if there ever was one, and for his sins, the army gave him one. Set in 1969, deep into the Vietnam War, after a particularly lonely and bloody bender, Willard is ordered to commandeer a Navy patrol boat up the river through Vietnam into Cambodia on a classified mission to terminate the command of the highly decorated Colonel Walter E. Kurtz, Marlon Brando, who's apparently gone insane and set himself up as a demigod amongst the natives. Willard boards the boat uh, with the officious chief, 
Cajun saucier chef, uh, South Bronx teen Mr. Clean, a very young Lawrence Fishburne, and famous California surfer Lance. They rendezvous, uh, after rendezvousing with the unflappable egomaniacal Lieutenant Colonel Kilgore, Robert Duvall, whose insistence that he and his soldiers surf Vietnamese waves while the battle rages isn't even the craziest thing they see on their journey. Indeed, as they go upriver, the surrounding land becomes less like the Vietnam War we all know and more like a psychotropic voyage into hell, not only of a war raging beyond control or understanding, but the dark heart of man himself. And I say that because there's very few women in this film. Sally... Shockingly, you had never seen Apocalypse Now before this week. This was my first viewing of it, and it was a really intentional choice that I hadn't seen this film. Um, I struggle quite badly with war films, especially Vietnam films. My father is um, a Vietnam vet, so I have, I guess, some stuff going on around (laughs) that. Um, But, you know, sort of recently I've been able to watch Full Metal Jacket, which is fantastic, and last night I watched Apocalypse Now for the first time, and um, it was incredible. I loved it. It was a hard movie, um, and... It was actually really, really different to what I thought it would be. Right. Yeah, very different to what I thought it would be. Um, it, you know, I, I'm wondering if I can talk about... You know, has everyone seen it? Can I, can I think I, we can yeah. make an yeah. assumption. It's, well, it's the yeah. 40th anniversary. Yeah. Yeah. And Let's it's, make an assumption. The Simpsons have probably revealed everything, so... Yeah, well, that's what I felt when I was... Because <laughs> I'm a really big Simpsons fan. I was like, okay, I've seen The Simpsons. Yeah. I can, I can do this. Um... But yeah, it was it was very different to what I expected it to be, particularly with the introduction of Marlon Brando's character. That just the way that it ended was completely not what I thought would happen with this film. Um, but geez, what I don't. It was only last night that I watched it, so I feel like I'm still processing it. Mm. But it was just so breathtaking in so many ways. The cinematography in it, the sound in it, just everything about this film was amazing. Um, it was a real treat to be able to watch this for the first time and I'm really, really looking forward yeah. to going and seeing this again. I've, I, can't, mm. I can't imagine. This film feels like the wallpaper to my yeah. life. I've just seen it so, so many mm. times. So um, rather from a different point of view, just looking at this final cut mm. that um, uh, Coppola is talking about and having seen the redux a long time ago, uh, having seen the original mm. cuts of all of this, uh, I thought that, um, and I have seen Apocalypse Now in the cinema as well. I can't remember when, but I do know I did at some point in my history. Uh, seeing it again was just, I, I forgot how mind-blowingly wonderful it is. But this 4K restoration, what really impacted on me, and Coppola does a little intro at the start where he explains the the cuts. And we did says, not get that at the Nova. Didn't you? Where did you see it, Emma? I saw it at the Lido Cinemas. Okay. Yep. Oh. And there was a little intro where he explains the um, that... Uh, this is he was asked for the 4k what cut he wanted to go with and he decided no I want to do another one because he felt that there was stuff in the redux that was sort of thrown in and some clunky cuts and he wanted to smooth it all over Walter Murch was involved again in this in this cutting who's the original um, editor or one of the original editors and um, he decided to cut out a, a lot of stuff that was in the redux um, one scene he left in that I think was um, 
a segue because the thing about Apocalypse Now is the journey. It doesn't feel like it's a series of scenes. It feels like a whole seamless journey. And then there's this aside where he goes um, to meet with these French plantation um, migrants, which I felt was really uh, a diversion with a level of sensuality that didn't fit with the film. That's quite a long scene. It, like it is. That, mm. I 20 made, minutes. I made the decision to watch the original, original cut, cut yeah. because I hadn't seen this at all before. I'm definitely going to go to the cinema and watch um, the well, final this, cut. This happens when the, kind of the descent into mm. hell as mm. well and yep. it felt like it, it, it just was a break that shouldn't have so, been there. Yeah, that wasn't in there. But it's no. almost like a dream. It's almost mm. like farewell to any civilised world so that you, you knew. So you like... I, I can see, see yeah. that it was concepts of home that I completely understand, but I don't think it was needed. I've, I've got to say, because I've seen all, like, all three, like yourself, mm-hmm. I'd, I'd seen the original on, via, in, on video way back in the day and like became one of my favourite films. Mm-hmm. Then I saw the Redux and I was really disappointed because it just mm-hmm. felt bloated and particularly mm-hmm. this sequence seemed to pull the handbrake on the whole film and it just seemed to... Yeah. And this time I actually found it a lot more palatable. And I think it was because they cut out some of the faff around it as well. And I don't know, like it's still not, I'm still, the the original is my favourite, the original yeah. cut. Mm-hmm. But this does, it. the fact they come in and out of mists before, the, the, the scene is bookended by them Do you know what being made me, I preferred this one and the final cut. And so this I tell is your you, favourite of all three? Yeah, I tell you why, because I've never heard it like that before. Oh, yeah. And I heard stuff that I've never... I heard dialogue. That whole amazing sequence with Duval, which is so loud, such an onslaught of sound, and they're yelling the whole time. I heard dialogue I'd never heard before. And... That was such an awakening, I felt. Yeah, I was just saying to Emma before that, that scene with Duval when I was watching the original cut of this, that there, the dialogue in there, I got lost in and mm-hmm. it seemed lost, you know, with everything else that was going on with it. So, yeah. Yeah. Mm. It's, it, it's, it's, look, I mean, we could just talk for hours about this film and we don't have it, unfortunately. <laughs> but you have I two urge, minutes. <laughs> look, I would say, I, look, it's currently, Apocalypse Now Final Cut is currently screening at Cinema Nova, the Lido, and selected Palace Cinemas, but in late. Late August, it's screening at the Astor Theatre and IMAX Melbourne. Yeah. I urge you, see this thing as big and loud as humanly possible because it's been mixed for Dolby Atmos, it's 4K, and it's it's an overwhelming experience. Yeah. Oh, the Definitely. noise. I've, I've, I couldn't believe how the introspective scenes, which is the opening scene, mm. is so loud. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's an incredible, incredible work. And, you know, his decade of the 70s, greatest decade in film history. I, I agree. I agree. It's my we all agree. <laughs> you are listening to Plato's Cave on Triple R. The DAX Centre is a gallery that uses art to understand mental health issues and reduce stigma. Their new exhibition, Finding Our Words, curates poetry, prose and spoken word with visual arts in unexpected ways. Finding Our Words is on now at the DAX Centre, located at the Melbourne Uni campus. Entry is free. For more info, visit daxcentre.org. The DAX Centre, sponsoring Triple R. Bar Itter, Ligon Street, Brunswick East, have a decade of experience offering Sicilian-inspired cuisine using seasonal produce. With private dining options available for lunch functions for bigger groups starting at 12 people. Celebrate with family, work or friends over a Sicilian feast. 
bookings and more info at barida.com.au. Triple R Sponsors. You've been listening to Plato's Cave on Triple R with Sally Christie, Emma Westwood and myself, Paul Anthony Nelson. On tonight's show, we discuss Be Natural, the untold story of Alice Guy Blachet, now screening exclusively at Cinema Nova. Our retro title, The Fly, now available to rent or buy on iTunes, Google Play and YouTube rentals, as well as screening in Myths Jeff Goldblumathon. And Apocalypse Now Final Cut, a limited 4K restoration season now screening in selected independent cinemas. You can listen back to the show within half an hour on Triple R On Demand or check out the songs we played on the Plato's Cave page at triplr.org.au right now. You can also subscribe to the Plato's Cave podcast via iTunes or wherever else you find your favourite podcasts. Next week, our intrepid cavers will welcome the return of a former member in the first of our two special episodes devoted to this year's Melbourne International Film Festival lineup. I, I think that we're going to be covering maybe 15 films next week. Good Lord. I'm, I'm oh, anchoring. I'm having a heart attack over You can be do fine. more than that. <laughs> Come on. 15 films. Get ready for a bumper <laughs> edition. A huge thank you to Faith Everard for editing the Plato's Cave podcast and panelling the show this week, returning killer Carl Chapman. <laughs> and thank you to Lisa Kovacevic for producing our show. This has been a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Want to hear more? Check out our website at rrr.org.au.